0: Welcome to the program, I'm Jeff Shackman. With the election just days away, think about how many presidents we've watched grow into the office. Boomers Clinton and George W. Bush, Gen X or Obama, earlier JFK and Jimmy Carter came to the office very unseasoned. Compare this to Ike or Reagan or George H.W. Bush or Lyndon Johnson, all who arrived for better or for worse as fully formed political and human beings. In this year's election, policy aside, Joe Biden comes to us having lived a very long public life, during which time he has grown into the person and the politician that he is today. Arguably, as a man who would become the nation's oldest president, it's fair to say that he is not still becoming who he is. While our presidential candidates seldom lack for position papers and policy, it's who they are that ultimately determines if they have, in Richard Ben Kramer's famous phrase, what it takes. Our vote for president is essentially a gut check about the man and the moment. And sometimes, not always, but when we're lucky, the man and the moment come together. This is a question that much of the nation is asking and answering about Joe Biden. And after almost 50 years in the arena, it should be easy to answer. But human beings are complex, and amid all the clamor of politics, it sometimes takes the work of people like my guest Evan Osnos to pull it all together. Evan Osnos is a longtime staff writer at The New Yorker. He won the National Book Award for his previous book, Age of Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth and Faith in the New China, and while at the Chicago Tribune, shared a Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting. It is my pleasure to welcome Evan Osnos back to this program to talk about his new work, Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now. Evan, thanks so much for joining us.
1: My pleasure, Jeff. It's great to be with you again.
0: Well, it's great to have you here. One of the things that, that's remarkable about you pulling all of this story together is to see the clear arc, the growth of Joe Biden over the years, certainly the Joe Biden of 1972, of 1988, even of 2008, is, is different, although you know the characteristics are all there, but it's a different guy than we see today. Talk about that.
1: That's exactly the thing that interested me about it. I I think, Jeff, you know, maybe it's because, you know, I'm now 43. I'm a little older than I was the first time I started reporting on Joe Biden. I have a little more of a sense of how life changes you and how the experiences, both the good and the bad, begin to build up some scar tissue. And you learn some things you didn't know at the beginning. Let's be honest. I mean, the Joe Biden that entered the Congress in 1973 was, a little callow, a little overly ambitious, a little, a little quick to put himself forward, and he was punished for it. I mean, the truth is, in an early debate, this is one of those little details that you don't hear as much about in the usual sort of two-dimensional portraits that we have uh, on a day-to-day basis. Is It was a day in Congress when he he started holding forth about a subject that he didn't know anything about. It was about oil wells. And somebody called him out on it. And they said, Senator Biden, they said, do you know anything about oil wells? And he actually learned from that. And he he was embarrassed enough that he started holding himself to a higher standard, started asking his staff to give him these detailed policy papers on anything before he would talk about it publicly. And there was a congressman, the late Stephen Solars, who remembers going into the Congress late one night, goes to the Senate. There's nobody around. And as he said, there he finds Joe Biden standing in the well of the Senate, holding forth like it was the Roman Coliseum to an empty chamber because he was just practicing. He was just, as he put it, working it like a tennis pro, in Solars' words. And I I think what we see today is this, this man who has been humbled a bit by history and his own experience.
0: One of the most interesting quotes, and I don't remember who said it, but that you talk about is somebody that referred to Joe Biden as both the luckiest person they knew and the most unlucky person they knew.
1: Yeah, that really stopped me. It was Ted Kaufman, who's known Joe Biden a very long time, worked for him as chief of staff, eventually served in the, in the Senate himself. And that was Ted's way of framing, to me, his, this incredible combination of political and personal fate, both the best and the worst that can happen to you. I mean, we all know his family has suffered in a way that uh, very few families have suffered losing two children in separate moments in life, losing his first wife. And at the same time, he had the good fortune to be elected to the Senate in this extraordinary landslide, this extraordinary upset. In, in when he was just 29 years old and then eventually After, you know, finding himself on the wrong side of issues like the war in Iraq, he finds himself tapped to become vice president to the first African-American president. And remember, Joe Biden ran for Congress in his first race, partly on a civil rights platform. There was a in a way this combination of the lucky and the unlucky that no scriptwriter could have imagined is the story of Joe Biden. And indeed, that's what brings us to this moment. You know we thought his his political career was over; he thought it was over in two thousand and sixteen and and yet he now finds himself almost uncannily suited because of his experiences because let 's be honest, his basic decency, even his opponents acknowledge that that he is he finds himself uh, the most popular candidate for a country that is grieving a country that needs somebody who has been through that
0: There is almost this sense of of surprise, a sense of awe that he's overcome what he has to arrive at this moment?
1: I think there really is. I, You know, look, I, I know a lot of progressive friends of mine who are saying, well, I'm not sure that he is with me ideologically. And I know a lot of people feel that way. You sort of sometimes sense that they've come to it and they say he wasn't my first choice or my second choice but what you find when you go into his story. And I, I, you know, I was a skeptic like a lot of people. I spent months digging into the details of his life, talking to the people who have really known him and know, and of course talking to him. It's been years that I've had interviews with him going back to 2014 and continuing up until this summer uh, during the pandemic. And I just come away with this sense of how he has been, um, how he has been hardened and, and changed my struggle one example people don't talk about it's actually how i start the book is that in 1987 right after he bombed out of the presidential race he had two aneurysms and he's talked about him he's written about them there's no secret that he had them but i don't think most people know just how grave it was in fact a priest was called in to deliver last rites that's how close it was to the end and a doctor came to him and said look we're going to do surgery on you but it may rob you of the ability to speak and he actually in the depth of that moment, he joked, well, I kind of wish that had happened to me last summer when I was running for president. And uh, and yet he came through it. I mean, he, he spent seven months recovering from that surgery, recovered fully and came back. And he said to people at the time, I've been given a second lease on life. And I think there's some real truth to that. It's not just a cliche. He, over and over, he has seen his life as a as a, a, something of a solemn obligation, a, a solemn responsibility to try to get the country through this period of extraordinary uh, of extraordinary risk.
0: And there is where the, the, the man and the moment kind of come together in a way that makes it particularly unique in that, like the country, like the moment that we're in now, he's come back from some pretty dark places.
1: He has. In, in a way, his life is a bit like a metaphor for all of us right now. He has had moments of feeling like he's on top of the world. I mean, he I mean, literally said to his wife uh, in the days after he won his race for Senate in 1972, he said, look, we have this, look at us, we have this beautiful family, three kids. I've just been elected to the Senate. I can't believe it's so good. And he actually did say at the time, something terrible is going to happen. And then he has, and then of course there was the accident. And then Follow that forward to today. The United States has had its moments of being at its highest, and today, in fact, I would argue, of course, a lot of us would agree, we're really at a a low point. And we need somebody who knows what suffering feels like. I think that's what comes through for me and his personal acquaintance with grit, with resilience, with actually getting yourself up off the floor, in his case, literally, and coming back is something that resonates with people. I, look, I, I, we could spend this whole time talking about his opponent, a man who has lived a life of completely unbounded privilege and opportunity, beginning with the very moment he was born into the, a family of, of real estate tycoons. And, and his capacity for empathy is not just, a, I think, a, or say incapacity for empathy, is not just a combination of his personal chemistry, it's a reflection of his experience. And Joe Biden comes from a completely different set of circumstances. He'd never met anybody in the Senate before he ran for it. He certainly never met a president before he ran, before he had the idea of becoming a president uh, at the age of just in his teens. And here he is today now, um, really sort of on the cusp of a moment in which he seems almost oddly suited for exactly what this country wants.
0: How much self-awareness was there with every stage of this kind of self-reinvention that he's gone through?
1: You know, I, in some ways, Joe Biden was not the most self-aware person in the world. I mean, that was something that for a long time, he was he was the guy who would drone on a little too long. People, you know, at one point I, in, when I was working on this book, somebody mentioned a, a, a funny detail to me that Barack Obama, when they were just beginning to, uh, they'd just been elected and, and And Barack Obama said to Biden, look, I always want your counsel on things, Joe. I just want it in 10 minute increments, not 60 minute increments. And I think there was something about that that was very much the, you know, that was that was 12 years ago. And even then, at that point in his life, he hadn't quite absorbed the power of listening. And you see him change. And he changed partly because of the influence of President Obama. Interestingly, I've talked to people who were in the administration who say you saw the two of them learning from one another. Obama was learning some of the power of this kind of personal connection of going out on the rope line and making eye contact with people in a way that really had a profound impact on people. And Joe Biden, of course, was learning discipline and the power of preparation for it to a degree that even he had never appreciated in his years in the Senate. And that changed him. And he later said, actually, privately said to David Axelrod, who related the story to me for the book, he said that when Biden came into office, Biden had said, look, frankly, I think I'm the one who should have the job of the presidency. He'd run for it. And after a few months of watching, you know what? I was wrong. The best man won. And I'm honored to be able to serve him. So there is a level of self-awareness you see come to sort of take over his life. At party.
0: Who else has had a profound influence on him?
1: He was shaped by a variety of, of somewhat different characters. I mean, he, he got into politics partly because of the influence of John F. Kennedy, both Irish Catholics, after all, uh, both young, both sort of dynamic in their in their times. Uh, we sometimes forget Joe Biden ran for office as the dynamic young upstart. He's had ads that ran in the paper uh, that said he understands what's happening now. Um, Later, he was influenced by uh, people like uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was, of course, the great orator and and also a, a, a progressive in his way at, at the time, and had an impact on Joe Biden politics. Um, he was also influenced uh, by Barack Obama in in some of the ways we've talked about. He didn't expect to be. He thought he was the more seasoned member of that of that pairing. And what he learned was that Obama had a way of. Uh, uh, he had an approach to politics that was elevated. It was using the power of language to, to sort of reach down into your into your soul, frankly, as a citizen and, and make you feel like you were engaged in a higher enterprise. And I think Biden somewhat knows his limitations. He knows he's not a speaker like Barack Obama, but he knows that there is this inherent power to the call to unity. And that's one of the reasons why I think he is forthright about it. Some people may look at it and say, "Look, unity is a fantasy. In fact, maybe it's a mistake for him to even be talking about it." He doesn't believe that. Barack Obama didn't didn't believe that it was a fantasy, and I think he's what you see in the in the popularity of Joe Biden as we close in on Election Day is that people are people are hungry for something different than the politics we have now of this tribal, polarized state. It doesn't have to be this way, and he doesn't believe that.
0: There's also a sense of of his ability as a traditional. Old school retail politician in this digital age of mass media. There's something so incongruous about it, and yet it seems to be working.
1: Yeah, in a way, the, the, the surprise about Joe Biden's candidacy is that he's the least socially, the least social media fluent candidate in the <laughs> field. I mean, he doesn't. He's not on. He's, he's not really out there tweeting, sharing sure, his campaign tweets. But he's not like Donald Trump, who's uh, who uses Twitter uh, compulsively. And in some ways, the fact that he was insulated from that social media conversation was probably very much to Joe Biden's advantage. Because during the can during the primary, there was a lot of talk on Twitter that he should he should drop out. There was no, you know, people were saying this is not a race for you. You've missed your moment. This we're, We don't agree with you politically. And what he knew, which was something that you didn't see that much in Twitter and, and frankly about my profession, we didn't talk about it much in the media as much as we should have, is that most Democrats today, in 2020, still describe themselves as, according to polls, moderates or conservative Democrats, and that's honestly where Joe Biden knew the party was, and he turned out to be right. He also recognizes, I think this is important, that he knows he's not—he's not, he's not like—he's not exactly of the uh, young generation, and he has said, "I want to be a transition candidate." That's a pretty powerful phrase. What he means is, he wants to bring in some of those people who really do understand social media, who do understand where politics are going, and are more liberal than he is. And I expect you'll see some of that in his government if he's if he's elected.
0: One of the things that has been consistent about him seemingly throughout, going all the way back to 72, 73, is a belief in government, a kind of institutionalist attitude, a belief that government can do things for people. Talk about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, in some ways, this is a— almost a radical thing to say these days, that government is perhaps a way of improving people's lives and helping them thrive. I mean, it wasn't all that long ago that Bill Clinton was entering office with the phrase that the era of big government is over. And this was an outgrowth, after all, of the 1980s and the and the, the sort of surge away from the power of government as a force of good, which had been established first by FDR and then expanded on under LBJ's good society. And Joe Biden in some ways represents a return to that belief that government properly applied. I mean, he's not just you know, saying we're going to spend money any way we can, but saying that if we use it in the right way, we can really improve people's lives. And this is partly an outgrowth of his experience with Obamacare. They fought for that politically. They achieved it. And now in many cases, even though Republicans are seeking to undo it in the Supreme Court, it is so popular in Republican areas that you have local Republicans who are unwilling to criticize it because they know it's it's a it's a non starter for them. So he is a he's a believer in the idea that the that the public good can be achieved in part by public power. And I think that's something that is that sets him apart very distinctly from this uh, from his opponent.
0: You know, there's always talk about the pressures on the presidency. We've all seen over the years so many pictures of the way presidents have aged as a result of the pressures of the job. If Biden gets elected, the pressures that he is facing are, are almost too many to even mention here, from the pandemic to, to putting the government back together to the pressures in his own party. Talk a little bit about his ability at this stage in his life to deal with a monumental set of pressures.
1: Well, it is true. I mean, as you say, Jeff, he's dealing with an, an almost impossibly complex set of challenges if he's lucky enough to win, and even more complex than what Barack Obama faced when he came into office inheriting a recession from the Bush administration. The reality is that Biden would be facing a pandemic, a recession, and all of the underlying structural issues we already uh, were facing. and And you know, when it comes to his age, I, I think we should be pretty clear about this. You know it, if we've learned anything this year, it's that we should probably be listening to to doctors about matters of health rather than to political analysts or writers or certainly to politicians themselves. And on this, the doctors are pretty clear. In Joe Biden's most recent physical exam, and I'm reading from here, it says that he is a healthy, vigorous man of his age. And his age is 77. He's not 37. But when you're running against a man who is, frankly, if Donald Trump was the oldest man ever to be elected president and then used his time in office to encourage us to inject bleach into his, our veins, he's probably not in a strong position to be criticizing Joe Biden's fitness. I think There is a, a sense all of us have who have interviewed him over the years, sort of watched him up close, have a, a, an ability to kind of see change over time. What I would say, and I say this emphatically, is, look, he is thinner than he was uh, six years ago. No question. He's 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 a little slower and yet his mind is unchanged. And I think you hear that if you listen to how he talks. And, you know, interestingly, in the audio book edition of of my book, we decided to include some snippets of the audio of the interview with him. Um, You know, hear it for yourself. You can decide. And I think it's interesting to hear how his mind works from his own mouth when he's not on a debate stage being forced to speak in, you know, 20-second soundbites.
0: To what extent do you think that he envisions himself as president for eight years at this point? Talk about that, how he sees his role if he's successful.
1: Well, I I don't think it's in any way a secret that he may not be in office for eight years. I think, um, he you know, he doesn't talk about being only a one-term president. Some of that's been floated uh, in the political pla- press and in the political class, he he doesn't he doesn't sign on to that. Nor should he. Frankly, be dumb politics. Because if you stay around the serve one term, you're an instant lane duck. He's not going to do that. Uh, he, he didn't get where he is by by fumbling the ball quite that way. But what he also did is he chose somebody as his vice president who comes from a completely different generation, uh, had you know, uh, one hopes years ahead of her in politics, and is ready for the job meaning that she has enough experience that she could do this and kamala harris is it is not an incidental pick he he puts a huge amount of emphasis on uh on the vice presidency because he had the job he knows that it matters if the president allows it to matter and it's what he said to me is the vice presidency is only as important as the president makes it and uh, i would expect that you will see a, a, a a pretty active vice presidency from Kamala Harris. I think she'll be out there in public. I think she'll be uh, acting as a bridge to another generation in a way that he can't and doesn't pretend he can be.
0: Is his period of self-reinvention over? Is what we see today what we're going to get for the next four years if he's elected?
1: Well, I, I think if I've learned anything from Researching the life of Joe Biden, the way I have, it's that his life has moved in utterly unpredictable directions. The number of times that we counted him out, that we have imagined that things are going to go one way, and then they've gone completely differently, uh, is really a remarkable story. I mean, it's just an amazing American story. It's one of the things that prompted me to write this book, and I I don't expect that the Joe Biden that is uh, that that we are facing today is is the last iteration we will see. I don't know what that means. Uh, but he has shown himself to be a person that, even in his eighth decade, is learning and changing. And I'll, I'll give you an example that sort of startled me. I asked him, I said, How did you, how did you, uh, what did you learn from the killing of George Floyd and the protests that followed from that? He said, Well, I learned I was wrong about something. He said, You know, I had been telling this story for years and years, a kind of parable about how I, Grew up in Jim Crow, Delaware, in which there was you know, segregation in some places, and I ran for office on a civil rights platform, and then I became the, you know, the I was lucky to be the vice president to the first black president, and it was this kind of, you know, convenient arc of history. It, it sounded right. Things were getting better, and then I saw that video, and I understood in a way I simply had not before, as he put it, that hate You can't extinguish it. Hate hides. It hides under a rock and it waits for a leader to give it oxygen. And then it comes roaring back. And that's something that Joe Biden learned at the age of 77. And I was quite taken with his willingness to talk about it and to talk about it as as clearly uh, as he did.
0: Evan Osnos, the book is Joe Biden, The Life, The Run and What Matters Now. Evan, I thank you so much for spending time with us.
1: My pleasure, Jeff. Always a always a pleasure.
0: Thank you.